So in today's world, for whatever reason, there's a lot of talk about microaggressions. You'll hear people talk about it, and mainly, actually, in the media what I hear is conservatives uh, downplaying it or, or saying it's ridiculous. They'll say, college kids today and their stupid microaggression talk are just a bunch of complainers, and they need to grow up, and it's anti-free speech, it's anti-American. And so someone, I think a patron, emailed me and said, will you please talk? Actually, I think it was you, Rebecca. Was it me? No. Oh, maybe it was someone else. A patron asked me to talk about microaggressions, and so I thought we would talk about it today in the podcast. Welcome to the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm chair of the Couple and Family Therapy Program at Antioch University, Seattle, and I'm also a licensed therapist. I have a guest with me today, Rebecca Bloom, who's also a therapist. Please introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Rebecca Bloom. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a board-certified art therapist. I work primarily with adults who are addressing complex trauma. I'm also have a certification in uh, somatic counseling, which is how the body holds trauma. And you have a book on Amazon that's selling like hotcakes called The Art Therapy Workbook. Uh, it's called Square the Circle. The Art Therapy Workbook. Art Therapy Workbook, yeah. Square the Circle, The Art Therapy Workbook. It's it's uh, conveniently priced at... fourteen ninety five or something like that. That's cheap. I think it's like... $11 on Amazon, actually. That's cheap. So go out and get that, like everyone else is. And we're going to talk about microaggressions. Today is a patron-exclusive episode, so this episode is just for patrons of the podcast. So if you're listening to this and you're not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear the full episode, along with several other exclusive episodes, you have to go to patreon.com and become a patron of the podcast. Know that when you become a patron, you'll have access to exclusive episodes, not only on patreon.com by, uh, there's a page there for patrons only, but you can also, you'll also get access to our exclusive premium feed on your podcast app. So if you're listening on your phone, we will send you instructions on how to access the premium feed so you can listen on your phone. That's amazing. Yeah. It was difficult to set up, but uh, we figured it out. <laughs> we muddled our... And we're still basically figuring it out. But, but. Dr. Honda sees no challenge. Yeah. It's too big. Okay. Welcome to the patron zone. Let's talk about microaggressions. What do you say? I I kind of want to talk to you about it, but... <laughs> yeah? I just want to say this straight up. I think people who don't understand microaggressions don't have them happen to them. Right. So primarily what I want to focus this discussion on is an, an, an article that came out by Bradley Campbell and Jason Manning uh, in 2014 in the journal Comparative Sociology titled Microaggression and Moral Cultures. This is a respectable journal and a res respectable article, and it's being cited by a lot of journalists particularly conservative right-wing journalists, even though they wouldn't identify themselves as such, but their language is such. And I want to, I want to talk about this because I have a lot of things to say, and, I'm, and I brought Rebecca on the show because I'm, I'm guessing she has a lot of things to say as well, and I'm curious what your take is on it. So let me just read part of this article because I think it'll get the conversation going. I read the entire, entire article and pulled what I thought were the the relevant quotes here. So this is the beginning of the article. It says, Campus activists and others might refer to slights of one's ethnicity or other cultural characteristics as microaggressions, and they might use various forms to publicize them. We identify the social conditions associated with each feature, and we discuss how the rise of these conditions has led to a large-scale moral chains change, such as the emergence of a victimhood culture that is distinct from the honor cultures and dignity cultures of the past. So in other words, they, in this article, talk about 
And it's an interesting read. It's well-written. But the philosophical underpinnings are perhaps a little screwed up. But they, they go into three different cultures, starting from honor culture and then transitioning to a dignity culture, transitioning to a recent victimhood culture. I think that in no time in history have we had access to more people and be able to speak about both our challenges and our successes. Uh, I really think about the Black Lives Matter movement and could something have happened in another time of this magnitude without Twitter? And I should say right now I'm reading a Marge Percy's book about the beginnings of the French Revolution and it follows 12 different young people and how they become radicalized. And it is this amazing look at what happens when every day is hard. And suddenly there is a cultural opportunity to say, it's okay now to talk about it. Great. I'm glad you're here, Rebecca. I think we'll be on the same page. So they go on to write microaggressions as defined by Daryl Dwing Sue, you know. Sue and Sue. Sue and, of Sue and Sue. There's a popular book that we use in our program written by Sue and Sue. This is one of the Sues, Daryl Dwing Sue, who is a Chinese-American. So microaggressions, as, as defined by Sue, are the brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial, gender, and sexual orientation and religious slights and insults to the target person or group. So again, I just want to read that again because I think it's a pretty good, it's not all-inclusive, but uh, it's a pretty good definition. The brief and commonplace, that's important. So it's, it, they're brief. It's every day. Every day, commonplace. Can I give an example? We'll get into that. All right. Of <laughs> so pretty. Yeah. Daily verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative slights or insults to a particular group. The term dates back to the 1970s, but it it has become more popular recently, mainly due to the effects of Mainly due to the, to the, I'm quoting from their article, mainly due to the efforts of academics and activists wishing to call attention to what they see as the subtle ways that racial, ethnic, gender, and other stereotypes can play out painfully in an increasing, increasingly diverse culture. And quoting them again, offhand remarks and questions might be microaggressions, such as, in an example Sue gives, when people ask him where he was born and then are unsatisfied when he tells them Portland, Oregon, because he is Chinese-American and looks Chinese, they are not satisfied when he says, I'm from Portland. The underlying message here, says Sue, is that I am a perpetual alien in my own country, end quote. Here are some other actions identified by Sue or others, as microaggressions. So I'll give an example. You give one too. For instance, saying you to an African-American person, you, you say, you're so articulate. <laughs> so what is the microaggression in that statement? Uh, that I did not expect you to be able to converse at this level. You didn't meet my expectation right. of what an African-American person would communicate, their communication style would be. Right. It's like talking to a five-year-old and saying, oh, you spell so well. You know, you think you're being complimentary. Mm -hmm. And to a five-year-old, you are, because five-year-olds are, you know, generally stupid. Just joking. They're they're still learning things. But to an African-American adult saying to them, oh, you're so articulate. It implies you believe that black people are innately or in general not not articulate. Or in, and by articulate, I, I find that that word has a particular insult in it because it's not just the ability to articulate, but it's also being smart and speaking in a particular way, uh, being uh, not being like a street hood, you know, not being like a thug, if you will. 
It's like, oh, you're not a thug. I didn't expect you not to be a thug. What's an example that you have? Uh, so I was just thinking about, um, so I am a lesbian, and when I was pregnant and later when I had my child, almost every person within moments of meeting me felt they had the right to ask me how I got pregnant. And it was so fascinating. I was thinking about straight women have this kind of bubble around them, which includes their heterosexual privilege of their husbands. No one would ever ask, Yeah, did you, you know, use in vitro fertilization? Right. Is that really your egg that you're carrying? Right. Is that really your husband's sperm? Right. But this idea that because I am a lesbian, my sexuality is up for discussion. Right. Right. And it's not intentional. No, it's very kind. Many people I love yeah. have asked me this question, but it's this assumption that, oh, you already know I'm a lesbian, and so therefore you have greater access to my sexuality and sexual choices. Well, that's one way of putting it, and I won't argue with that. Another way of putting it is ignorance of how the question will make you feel. Not that they feel that they have a right, per se, but it's an ignorance to the way it makes you feel. For instance, I'm just guessing that other lesbians who have been pregnant might not ask you that question. Am I right in that? They probably wouldn't ask it on our first hanging out. Right. Or they would ask in a particular way. Right. In a way that was um, more empathetic. Uh, Whereas if you're hetero and you have never had that experience, you wouldn't know that a question like that would bother you. For instance, an example that I have in that I perpetrated was I, and you might even, actually, I know you know her. I won't say her name. But there's a student at Antioch who is part Native American. She's not a student anymore. And she, I can't remember how it came up, but she said she was Native. And, and so I said, oh, what tribe? And she said to me, actually... We don't really like answering that question, she said. And I, and I was like, and she said it in a way of like kind of cringing that I even asked. Mm-hmm. And I, I meant no harm by that question. I was in my heart being interested and wanting to, to I don't know, romanticize her history, you know, because the Navajo have a romantic history and the you know, other tribes have romantic histories. And, and so in my mind, I was wanting to honor her, but she took it. My guess is, as a somewhat of a microaggression in that I was asking a question that wasn't being empathetic to what it's like to have to answer that question every fucking time. Sure. You're, you tell someone your ethnicity, my, you know, it, it's, it's also like, does she want to be romanticized? You know, does she want someone to know, uh, that information? Uh, it's, it's a subtle thing. Now, again, totally unintentional as the definition says. And I think the theme that's coming up here is that the person of the majority culture feels like they have access, feels like every question is available to them. Which I think is part of it, and but I, I want to take it easy on it a little bit in that when we talk about the majority culture, say white males, and we frame it that way, we narrativize it as, how dare you think you have a right to me? I think that when they hear that, they tend to discount the entire message we're trying to get across to them. Because they themselves do not have that narrative. They don't, they don't, they might be very timid, nice people. Sure. The, the issue is ignorance of how it's affecting people. They just don't know. You know, someone asking, uh, you know, Sue, where are you from? <laughs> and he's like, I'm from Portland. And they're like, uh, no, no, where are you from? It, it's not that they feel entitled per se. They, they just are so ignorant to what that question makes someone else feel like. Sure. For instance, it, they would never in their, you know, for most people, they would never want to make a 
citizen of America feel like a foreigner. They, they don't want, for most people, they don't want to do that. They're just, compl- they've never been in that person's shoes. Mm-hmm. And so they don't know what it's like to, you know, I, I'm not a Native American. So I've never had someone ask me a billion times what my tribe is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's that kind of thing. And so I, anyway, I, I think there are obviously entitlement and, and Rebecca, you're free to narrativize it however you want, obviously. Can but, I give another example that will sure. put the power into place? So I think the example now of the Black Lives Movement, there was a recent set of protests on a campus, and they did not want major media sources documenting it, photographing it. They would not take interviews. And there was quite a confusion from the media outlets. Like, you know, I'm from NPR. I'm on your side. What's the deal? And the message back was, we will put this message out. We don't need you to be the middleman of our message. So back off. Right. And that is such a shockingly different way of talking about how the quote message gets out. But I think with platforms like Twitter, um, people can put out their message exactly the way they want it. And they don't want this experience of being viewed through another lens or that the other side gets interviewed so that the story is balanced. Right. And I think that's why things like microaggressions are suddenly in the forefront because with a platform like Twitter, you take out this both sides need to be represented experience, which has been our dominant power structure, our dominant information generating machine for generations. And the people who are in charge of the communication in the past, news outlets, TV shows, movies, newspapers, are predominantly white men. And so when a movement like Black Lives Matter comes out, they, it doesn't tend to resonate with them. They, they, it either, they're either neutral about it, like it doesn't feel important to them, or they are hostile toward it because they don't understand it. And we'll get into that, too. Other examples that they provide here. Telling an Asian American that he or she speaks English well. It's pretty obvious. And, and as a kid growing up in the 70s, I would get that. And you do speak English very well. Kirk. I'm actually not that great at it. <laughs> I've always been really impressed with your fluency. Uh, yeah. Clutching one's purse when an African-American walks onto an elevator. Mm-hmm. This one I like particularly because it's, it's such a common thing for people to do. And I think what it demonstrates, you know, if, you, if, if you're a... I'll talk about my... Well, should I? I have a relative, an, a much older relative, very old relative, that grew up in a different time, and she's terrified of black people. And she's very cute, and she's very loving, and she's very non-offensive, but she's terrified of black people. And (laughs) there's a story of she and some other people in my family went to, like, the video store or something and left her in the car, and they went into the video store. And while they were in there... uh, this 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 uh, shall we say um, this older relative who is afraid of black people out of the corner of her eye she saw a black person and so she locked the doors mm. she didn't look at him but she could she could see him out of the corner of her eye and then she held her purse really tight and she was she couldn't wait until they got back to the car. They get back to the car, and they look at her, and she looks terrified. They're like, what's, what's going on? And she says, well, there's a, you know, there's a black man staring at me. I can, I, can, I can see him out of the corner of my eye. We got to go. And they're like, huh? And they look out the window, and it's a cutout of Denzel Washington in the window. <laughs> <laughs> now it's a cutout of Denzel. You can't offend or have a microaggression against Denzel. But anyway, my point is is that she she is not 
a hostile person to black people, but her her prejudice manifests in such a way that it is a microaggression if if there was a real human being there and they saw her see him and lock the door and clutch her purse, it hurts your feelings. If And what white people don't understand in general is what the, how that would make you feel. To the conservatives out there who rail against microaggressions, they've never experienced this before. And to have this happen, I mean, just imagine that on a daily basis. I'm not black, so, but I've heard enough stories and put myself in their shoes enough to feel like I have at least some inkling of what it would be like to just walk, you're just walking around being yourself and just be, you're trying to be nice and, and you're being polite and people are terrified of you. Yeah. Clutching their purse. I would get so angry at the world Mm -hmm. if that happened to me that I would start committing crimes just to prove them that they're right about me. Well, and the opposite happens. I mean, if you look at the statistics of depression among African-American males, it is so high and so untreated because people take these daily microaggressions and, and internalize them. Right. And what do they turn to, particularly men? Alcohol and drugs as a way of alleviating this pain that they're feeling. And what do you do when you mix depression and anger at society with alcohol? Well, there's going to be situations that occur. And I think to talk about the somatic incidents as well, if you look at the rate of um, heart disease in the African-American community, diabetes, emphysema, uh, asthma, they are so high. Right. I think research has found that People who ex- who experience more racism actually have a higher incidence of heart disease and this sort of thing. So here's another example, the final example they give in this article. Staring at lesbians or gays expressing affection in public. What do you think about that one, Rebecca? Um, you know, you feel the otherness. I mean, I would give the different example. Uh, uh, so uh, the exotification, I feel... When I know that I am at a party to represent gay culture, hmm. uh, I can think like there's a bunch of heteros, and something comes up about about boy George, <laughs> and everyone turns to you and says, "What do you think?" Right, and then the example I give back is way more complex about you know defining cisgender privilege, and then they're bored. <laughs> because they don't participate in my culture and they don't even know the language that I'm speaking. Right. So it really makes me think of this time I was at an auction event and it was so clear that the person who was hosting the table was so excited that she had the lesbian couple at her table. Like we were her diversity points and it was so <laughs> What did she do? Painful. I, you know, bringing other people over to kind of show that we were there um, talking about our future plans, which are so clearly not going to happen. God. Um, but if you have ever been exotified, you, you know it instantly. You know when you're not being seen as a person. Segway, there's an excellent episode of The Grinder on this topic. Uh, and the issue there is the guy has a famous sibling. But it's very funny the way it's handled in that show. All right, I'll go on and read some more of this article. Those who deem someone's conduct deviant or offensive might react in many ways. They could use direct aggression, verbal berating, or physically assaulting the offender. They could exercise covert avoidance, quietly cutting off relations with the offender without any confrontation or overt complaint. Or they could conceptualize the problem as a disruption to their relationship and seek only to restore harmony without passing judgment. In any case, much of the social control that occurs in day-to-day life involves only the aggrieved and the offender. I should jump in here and say, in sociology, they have this term called social control. It sounds very strong, but it's actually a general term that it refers to a, a lot of daily things that we do to try to, uh, you know, control people's behavior. Again, 
control sounds very controlling, but there's actually a lot of things that we do to control. You know, if someone walks down the street with no pants on and no underwear, there's a lot of social control elements that will kick in to get that guy to put pants on. You know, please I mean? put some pants on. Right. So, so there's a, there's a lot of things in our culture that control behavior. And so in this article, they're talking about that. Okay. I'll go on. Microaggression websites are different as a form of social control. Perhaps the most notable feature of microaggression websites is that they publicly air grievances, inviting and encouraging users to broadcast their knowledge of offensive conduct to readers who would be otherwise unaware of the incident. So, so far, just jumping in here, I'm with, I'm with the writers. Everything they've said so far, although said a little off, there's a, little, there's a tone to it, but I'm mostly with them, but I'll, I'll get to the part where that I'm, I no longer get with them. But then this is typical to, to ideological writers in academia. They'll start general and they'll start writing in a way that most people can buy into and they lull you into submission and then they hit you with their own stupid opinions, which happen later. They go on to say, creating and contributing to such websites, these microaggression websites, thus belongs to a larger class of conflict tactics that seek to attract the attention, sympathy, and intervention of third parties. What do you think about that? Well, I think for years, people have been able to just get away with stuff. Right. And now in the current social media culture, you are, your behavior is a question and people can hear about it quickly. And people who've never had to think about how they behave in public are suddenly asked, too. So uh, thinking about how different things are handled on college campuses um, and how people are being held accountable. Right. How could you do nothing? Right. Suddenly that's not, it's, it's no longer acceptable. And we're coming up with a generation who's been taught anti-oppression theory from a very young age. Don't bully. And they get to college and they're like, what's happening? Right. Because colleges have a lot of old school things that are happening. And even at Antioch, there are things that are happening that I, they're happening less now, but they would happen and I would say like, whoa, aren't we supposed to be the cutting edge social justice institution? Why is this happening? And it was usually because of older people doing things from another generation. Not to accuse all old people, (laughs) but... Uh, that was usually the case. Did you find that to be true? Uh, yeah, I think that there is a way in which um, people just learn not to question. So the example I would give is, um, it's going to be hard. Uh, there was a man who was pregnant. Do you remember this story? He was a recently transitioned man. He became pregnant. He was on People magazine. All of oh yeah yeah yeah, and uh, people. Would I thought come, you were talking about an Antioch student. Oh, no, no, like, no, I don't. Know, but yeah, the national person. Right, yeah. right. So, coming out in the lesbian community or being in the lesbian community, I have known lots of versions of this story. I know two other people who have had a similar experience. Um, but people came to me like, "Isn't this exciting?" You know, ooh, and I'm like, you know, no, like this is not commonplace in my world, but not unheard of. And if you know anything about endocrinology and, you know, hormones, all of this is possible. So there's a way in which um, people wanted me to be excited about things that, like, that's their excitement. (laughs) They need to own it. Yeah. And not make assumptions just because they're hearing about something for the very first time that it is new to me as well. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And... Yeah, absolutely. Stuff like that happens all the time. Well, the thing that I think of when I read this is they're, they're, they want to talk about microaggressions and they want to talk about our culture. And their primary data are these, what they're referring to as microaggression websites, of which I have no knowledge of any. Do you know of any microaggression website? I, I don't. So they keep referring, and they, I think they cited a couple of them. I didn't look them up, in all honesty. But the first thing I think of when I, when I read that, I'm like, are you that out of touch? Like, you're, 
you equate microaggressions with microaggression websites. Mm-hmm. And what I think of when I hear that is you're obviously ignorant of our culture. Microaggressions, in my book, and again, I'm just speaking from my cultural pocket, is a philosophical understanding and a movement in our culture to understand and reduce microaggressions. Mm -hmm. And that could entail anything from using the internet to talking compassionately to someone else or getting, or getting support from someone else. You know, there's lots of ways microaggressions can, we could, can't we all agree that when you hurt someone's feelings, we should stop doing that? Well, there's, the easiest way to stop doing that is for people that do it to stop doing it. And how do we get the information to the people that are doing it? For instance, with the Native American, what's, what tribe are you from thing, I had to have someone directly tell me in, in subtle ways to some extent that that was a microaggression. And, I, and now I never do it again. And now when people talk with me and I have an opportunity, I'll drop that in. That has nothing to do with a microaggression website. It has nothing to do with Twitter. It has nothing to do with victim culture. It just has to do with someone essentially communicating to me that they don't like that. And then I told people. It'd be similar to when you're on the playground and you're four years old and you have a rock in your hand and you want to throw it at Jenny's head. And you throw it at Jenny's head and she turns around and she says, that fucking hurt. (laughs) because <laughs> Jenny has a potty mouth because her parents <laughs> taught her that way. And Johnny goes, oh, my God, I didn't know I had a rock in my hand. I wanted to throw it at your head, and I got this response. I'm not going to do that anymore. Hey, everybody, let's have a microaggression website in which I post not to throw rocks at Jenny's head. No, it's just fairness and compassion and understanding. That's the essence of the microaggression movement. It has nothing to do with websites or the broader culture. I mean, that it'll affect the broader culture for sure, sure, and we're all affected by the broader culture. But in my culture pocket, that's what microaggression means. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So I'm going to go super macro about micro. Ooh. Are you ready? Yeah. So when the controversy came up of removing, uh, oh man, the flag of the Confederate Party. Yeah from many major institutions in the South uh, was an interesting conversation to have with my then sixth grader. Why is this happening? What does this mean? And there was a really great radio show that I heard that talked about how the conservative movement is inherently against multiculturalism. Mm. Now that we have won the war in a way of macroaggressions, you can no longer kill a black man in custody as a police force and get away with it. Mm -hmm. That was the standard for 400 years in our country. Like this is a pretty revolutionary thing that is now happening. Um, So now that it's clear that these major aggressions towards people of color um, are at least on the surface, whether things like the voter rights act gets repealed or anything, you know, it's like we haven't won the whole war as Martin Luther King would say, the road to justice is long, but it curves. Bends toward justice. <laughs> it curves in the right intention. Yeah. Uh, so microaggressions are the new platform to begin discussion. And I'm sure it is so horrifying to the conservative agenda that multiculturalism has depth to it yeah. and has a variety of things that we're thinking about. Yeah. And... You know, who gets into college is not the only thing. But once they get to college, what do you say to them and right. how do you treat them? I'm sure it's absolutely horrifying for them. Yeah, yeah. you said it beautifully. That's exactly how I see it. It's, it's okay, we've, we've gotten rid of the, the major atrocities, the major injustice. Now we're, we're fine-tuning and we're talking about subtleties. And we're essentially accusing people of doing wrong things. And they're naturally defensive. But, you know, when I heard, when someone said to me, hey, I don't appreciate it when people ask me about what tribe I'm from. I didn't go, oh my God, what a B word. 
I can't believe she's so sensitive. What's wrong with her? I listened to it and I said, oh, I didn't mean to hurt her feelings and I didn't intend to bother her. I was trying to be cool, but I inadvertently stepped in a pile of crap Um, and I need to stop doing that. Now, I'm primed to understand that because as a person of color myself, I've experienced that before. Now, if you're one of those people in the mainstream majority of our country, there's, like I said before, there's a chance that you have never experienced that before. And so it might be a little, just a little harder for you to understand. But I challenge people to imagine having your feelings hurt and not liking it. Can you imagine that, please? Anyway, so we, they go on to say, they start, they start this, is, this is when you start hearing the uh, microaggression against microaggressions. Of the many ways people bring their grievances to the attention of third parties, perhaps the most common is to complain privately to family, friends, coworkers, and acquaintances. This is called gossip or evaluative talk about a person who is not present. What do you think about that? Uh, that sounds a little wacky yeah. to me. Like when you experience oppression, you need to go home and talk about it. <laughs> right. Yeah. Gossip? What the fuck? I mean, are you fucking kidding me? Gossip? Do you call Martin Luther King gossiping? Do you call, uh, you know, Abraham Lincoln gossiping? This is, this is ridiculous. To label something gossip, uh, uh, justice, and empathy, and understanding, and equality, and... Uh, anti-racism as gossip is is an attack, I think. Sure, and I think it's a way to kind of feminize it. I think it's inherently... Yes. It's inherently sexist, that comment, because what right. you're saying is the conversations that people are having are trivial um, and, and not of the standard that you know this other party is having. I just want to give a quick... Do you know the history of the word trivia? No. Okay. So trivia comes from uh, the Greek, or actually I don't know the exact etymology, but it was this idea of trivia, where the three roads met, mm. where trade would happen. Usually that trade, women would be uh, in charge of that trade. And the conversations that they would have would be called trivia, which then became trivia, which then became considered at the bottom of what is important? Trivial. Trivial. Yeah. The question I have is in sociology or social psychology, I'm wondering if the word gossip doesn't have the negative connotation that it has in the regular culture. It so has to. It doesn't have to. It's sort of like the social control uh, okay. concept. There are certain, like, for instance, in our world, when you hear the word psychotic, right. you think of someone who's delusional, schizophrenic. To the regular culture, psychotic is a funny word to them. Mm-hmm. It's a word like, oh, she's so cray, you know, she's psychotic, you know, to them. Like, I'll say the word psychotic to, to regular people and they'll giggle mm-hmm. and or say psychosis and they'll, they'll giggle. They'll, huh. Or I say psychotherapy and people will giggle. So, psychotherapy. You know, so there's there's we have a way we have a different meaning of that. Mm-hmm. And the regular public has a different meaning of that. I'm wondering, you know, I'll give it a little grace and wonder if the word gossip has a different meaning to them. But I think as we go on, we can, we can definitely slam them for things. So then they go on to say, when the victims publicize microaggressions, they call attention to what they see as the deviant behavior of the offenders. In doing so, they also call attention to their own victimization. Ah, oh, Yes. Indeed, many ways of attracting the attention of sympathy, uh, the, the attention and sympathy of third parties emphasize and, exas- and exacerbate the low status of mm-hmm. the aggrieved. I said that sentence. But many ways of attracting the attention and sympathy of third parties emphasize and, or exacerbate the low status of the aggrieved. What do you think about that statement? 
Well, it's interesting how much of this is inherently sexist. Yeah. So the idea to take a victim stance uh, is, to the writers, it sounds inherently unattractive. Right. To say something bad happens to me is to therefore... Lower just, your status. Right. Yeah. And this, I, yeah. And I think that's actually a big shift that's happening in our culture now is that you can you can now say, be thanks to feminism, something bad has happened to me and still be considered a person in our culture. Right. Low status. Low status. So not only is it gossiping to talk about microaggressions, but it's also emphasizing my low status. Mm -hmm. So when my friend says to me, don't ask me my tribe. She has now, she's gossiping, and or if she went to someone else, that would be the thing. If she went to someone, oh my God, Kirk asked me what tribe I was. I don't like it when they do that. Yeah, I don't like it when they do that either. They're gossiping, one, and two, they're emphasizing their low status. Mm-hmm. Low status. Where in the world are they getting that from, low status? Well, I think it speaks to that someone of, you know, I mean, this is economic privilege that you would never speak of the ways that you had been wronged because there's so many other ways that you're just fine. <laughs> so you well, that and if you're of the privileged class, you're never wronged in these ways. You, you might experience unfairness in other ways. But then daddy comes in and fixes it. Right. <laughs> and or your culture is emphasizing of invincibility and unflappability or something, you know? But when you're flapped frequently and daily... You need to start saying something about it. And anyway, so gossiping and low status. This is this is a this is hostile to uh, marginalized people and to people that are harmed. They go on to say, people portray themselves as oppressed by the powerful, as damaged, disadvantaged, and needy. They actually have the word needy in here. What the fuck? So when someone is talking about a microaggression, they are portraying themselves, according to these authors, these respectable sociologists, academics, big time. These aren't just journalists. These are big time academics. They're portraying them. People talking about microaggressions are portraying themselves as damaged and needy. What the fuck? Damaged? Uh... What they, someone has done something wrong to them, and they are alerting people to it, or they might even t- be speaking directly back to the person. Hey, sure. I don't like it when you do this. You know, that's a microaggression. If I said that, I'm not saying I'm damaged. Now I might, but that's not automatic. And I'm definitely not saying I'm needy. I'm being assertive. God damn it! I'm telling you to fuck off. That's not needy. Well, I think of the Donald Trump example, which is to only be boastful and loud and successful, and right. that I don't need anybody. <laughs> and and even his lessers. I mean, even George or the next Bush, Jeb Bush, has the same portrayal of you know I will fix it. I am impervious, and this idea that you would talk about any of your flaws or air any of your grievances publicly is just so distasteful. Right. They go on to say other such gestures include the ancient Roman practice of squalor where the aggrieved party would let his hair grow out, wear shabby clothes and follow his adversary through the streets and the Indian practice of sitting Dharna where he would sit at his adversary's door. Again, these examples to equate alerting someone to a microaggression to this ancient Roman practice of squalor is just so... I I don't know if these guys are ignorant, stupid, hostile, unaware. Uh, I don't know what their deal is, but it's really... And the thing I'll say here is that the reason why I'm targeting this article is because... There are lots of people that are looking at this article as proof to all of the things that they believe to be true. A lot of conservatives are quoting this article. It's like, it's like their little Bible as to 
to slam this victimhood culture. Because the main thesis of this article is that we have a culture of victimhood. That's, that's what they're labeling it. We used to have a culture of honor. And then after that, which was... Where people were victimized, but silent. Well, <laughs> well, actually, the culture of honor was when you were victimized, you shot them. Oh, okay. So you would, have, you would say, you have, you have aggrieved me, let's mm-hmm. duel tomorrow and I'll shoot you, like Hamilton and Burr. Mm-hmm. And then, so there was that culture. And we all know how that went. But they call that a, a, a honor, which sounds nice. It's an honorable culture. And then you have a, a, a culture of dignity after that, which was when uh, you, you're aggrieved, you actually silently judge the other person but do nothing. You act like nothing happened to you and you, you have dig, they call that dignity. Why they label that dignity? I don't know. And now we have an emerging victimhood, victimhood culture rather than calling it something like a culture of, of the voice, yeah, having a voice, having a voice, <laughs> uh, a culture of e- equality, a culture of communication. I mean, there's so many labels. Why victimhood culture? Mm-hmm. And so Idiot journalists that don't really even understand how to read such articles just read a summary of this and they go, see, even academics, you know, right. are, are saying and they act like because some because two idiot academics are are stupid and writing stupid shit that that completely justifies everything that they're thinking. I mean, as an academic myself, I appreciate the privilege of everyone believing every word I say because I'm an academic. I do. But I'm, but I'm here to tell you that academics are just as stupid as everybody else, apparently, right? Okay. So along those lines, uh, someone in the New York Times, this, this article called The Real Victims of Victimhood in the New York Times, written by Arthur, Arthur Brooks just last month. And it is uh, victimhood, so they say, victimhood culture has now been identified as a widening phenomenon among mainstream sociologists. And it is possible, and, and it is impossible to miss the obvious examples all around us. We can laugh off some of them, for example. For example, the argument that the design of the Starbucks cup is evidence of a secular, secularist war on Christmas. Others, however, are more ominous. Ominous. Others. On campuses, activists interpret ordinary interactions as microaggressions and set up safe spaces to protect students from certain forms of speech. Now, I work on a college campus every day, and these sorts of things don't happen enough, in my opinion. And the ones that, for whatever reason, manage to hit the media and the larger culture, I'm guessing are, you know, here's the thing. We are progressing in our culture towards a more egalitarian, more sensitive, more, uh, more humane culture. We're, we're moving in that direction. If, if, if we continue to head in the direction we've been heading in 50 years from now, the concept of microaggressions will be understood. Everyone will get it. And we'll be better about it. We'll, maybe we'll be talking about ultra microaggressions at that point. I don't know. But as we move as a culture that's made up of human beings with an average IQ of 100, I always have to remind mm, myself. That's really important. The average IQ of an American is 100. That's intense. Half of Americans have, have an IQ of less than 100. I always have to remind myself that. So... So we are a culture made of people. And as we start to progress, and as people are rightfully so moving towards uh, making the world a better place, is there going to be stupidity and mistakes along the way? Absolutely. Yes. People are going to say stupid shit. They're going to, you know, like the Black Lives Matter uh, in Seattle when they interrupted Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. That was a mistake. I don't know about what you think about that. Now, I understand what they were doing, but it did not come across well. Mm-hmm. You know, Bernie Sanders is the one candidate that actually supports them, and they interrupt his speech, and everyone starts booing, and their message was sort of ill-said, and it just, it just media-wise, was not a smart move. There are other moves that Black Lives Matter does that are, that are wonderful. Uh, 
But anyway, so are there going to be missteps? Absolutely. But that doesn't mean that the, f- the few missteps that occur completely invalidate the movement altogether. Well, and I think what the true conversation is about really gets lost. So on college campuses, one of these uh, discussions that got so lost was about what are acceptable Halloween costumes. Right. I'm glad you brought this up. And the idea that it's Halloween, I can wear whatever I want. I can do blackface. I can do Asian stereotypical costumes. This is a right of my free speech is, I consider pretty clueless in this day and age. And I should say this is as a highly creative person who always makes an off the charts Halloween costume. Right. Um, So this idea that you might have to think a little bit. Right. Uh, it's too overwhelming. Right. Right. What happened was, I think it was not even a professor. I think it was like the spouse of a professor or something. What happened was the the university or someone came out and said, hey, everyone, try to think about your Halloween costumes this year and try not to offend people. I think I have this right. And then a professor or the spouse of a professor wrote in to their college publication and published a letter that said that that was restrictive and ridiculous and we all just need to relax. And I understand where that comes from, but uh, but again, as you say, the idea that there should be no guidance or no no thought as to how your costume is going to affect other people is is not cool, you know? So anyway, then a bunch of people fought back, and then the professor and their spouse dug their heels in, and there's this famous video where the guy is in a circle of... He's in a geisha costume? No. No, <laughs> he's just standing there on campus, and he's in a circle of people of color and other allies yelling at him about, uh, and, and to me, you know, I understand both sides, but what needs to happen is the people, uh, that are white and these are white people. Okay. They need to say to themselves, okay, I obviously don't understand what their experience is. Please tell me your experience. Instead of just saying, oh, come on, relax, it's just <laughs> Halloween. Instead of that, how about you say, huh, they're, they're saying something. I don't understand it. And frankly, I don't like it. But maybe I should ask some questions to understand where they're coming from, rather right. than just pontificating as if you know what's happening and walking into a big pile of shit. Now, are the kids around them making some mistakes. I, I would say so. When you watch that video, there's some cringeable moments from from the people that are the pro-microaggression talk people. There's some moments where I'm just like, you know, face-palming, going like, don't say that. There, You know, there's people, I don't know what's happening, but, you know, things like equating him with Nazis or equating um, him with lynching people. You know, let's try to keep it within what we're talking about. We're just talking about Halloween costumes and and uh, and that's that's it. And we don't have to go ballistic in my mind about that. Should we speak back? Yes. But I think that's another reason why the conservatives uh, laugh at the microaggression movement is because it's 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 sometimes not tempered to the situation. And there are black. It, it comes out as a black and white discussion. You're either a Nazi or you're with us. Mm-hmm. And when you have that message, it doesn't help to continue the conversation. You know what I'm saying? And I think when conversations get that hot, you know, the the learning doesn't happen then. But the learning will happen in a year or two when everybody's been able to calm down and look at. But I wonder. I, I wonder if given the current conversation around microaggressions, if we're potentially taking steps backwards. I'm a little bit more hopeful. I mean, I would say the way my clients now come into session 
being able to identify their own experience of microaggressions in their lives and speak about it. I think there's a tremendous amount of education that's happening for people on a personal level. Um, And people are being able to say, hey, if every time I do X, you know, my boss tells me he's surprised I can do that because I'm a woman, you know, maybe that's not okay. Yeah. Like, so I think at a, for individuals, I think there's a tremendous level of education going on because of these larger, complicated, painful public conversations. Right. And I think part of it that needs to be emphasized that I don't hear, I I can't remember hearing anyone emphasize it, is empathy and compassion for the microaggressor. They're human beings. They're they're likely trying their best. They their heart is likely just as big as yours. They've just been indoctrinated into a system in which they are taught to do that sort of stuff. And it's gonna take some time for them to adjust. And maybe getting angry is part of that wake up call. But at the same time, try to have some compassion. As a professor, I deal with Students from around the world, from various backgrounds, a Southern Baptist, a small town Indiana guy, uh, someone, a gay person from San Francisco. I, everyone is coming into the program, and we start talking about this stuff, and there are various different levels of understanding. And if I slammed everyone <laughs> for not being on board or not thinking sure. the way I want them to think, then where are we going to be? And I have to admit that sometimes I do slam people. <laughs> and then I think about it later and I think, God damn it, stop doing that. It's hard not to slam people. But if we're going to move our society forward and if we're going to bring conservatives into the fold, we've got to have some compassion and, and sort of cool our jets a little bit, you know? By all means, be assertive and by all means, say something. But, but, Let's start it. Let's stay away from the Nazi words. <laughs> let's stay away from the the lynching words. Let's stay away from the uh, I don't know, just the the strong language. Uh, let's try to if they're going to listen to us, we've got to start speaking in a way that they're going to listen to us. And they will receive the benefits of it. Benefits of it. I mean, I think about in the revolution that is happening with important organizations now being looked at as places where childhood sexual abuse happened mostly towards men in the church in choirs in well-known uh college prep high schools the fact that men can now come forward in large groups and say this happened to me that's a revolution that started 40 years ago with women first coming forward to talk about their sexual abuse history. So the idea of like where this conversation is going to be in 40 years, we have no idea. And I'm pretty hopeful. I guess overall I'm hopeful too. Some other things that are in this article are the following. Victimhood culture makes worse citizens. (laughs) People who are less helpful, more entitled and more selfish. In 2010, for social psychologists from Stanford University, published an article titled Victim Entitlement to Behave Selfishly in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology. So just jumping in here, there are if you want to look for academic articles that support your, your racist, bigoted bullshit, you can find it. And, you know, Victim Entitlement to Behave Selfishly. It's just an interesting title. Sure. But let's look, at, let's look at the research. The researchers randomly assigned 104 human subjects to, to two groups. So right there, we're looking at a limited number of people and with no mention of follow-up from a non-biased person. But anyway, there's also no discussion of effect size, which always bothers me. Anyway, members of one group were prompted to write a short essay about a time when they felt bored. The other group was to write about a time when your life seemed unfair. So write about it when you were bored, this group, 
and these other 50 people write about when uh, your life seemed unfair. Perhaps you felt wronged or slighted by someone. So you're supposed to write about that. After writing the essays, the participants were interviewed and asked if they wanted to help the scholars in a simple, easy task. And the results were stark. I'm terrified to learn what happened next. Those who wrote the essays about being wronged were 26% less likely to help the researchers (laughs) and were rated by the researchers as feeling 13% more entitled In a separate experiment, the researchers found that the members of the unfairness group were 11% more likely to express selfish attitudes. In a comical and telling aside, this is the the author sort of, you know, interpreting this study. In a comical and telling aside, the researchers noted that the victims were more likely than the the non-victims to leave trash behind on the desks (laughs) and to steal the experimenter's pens. Okay, so now, I don't question the study. I, I sure. would imagine it's probably rec- replicatable. But I, the interpretation of the meaning well, is what's at right. question I mean, here. I would say when you ask someone to write a story about how they've been triggered, what aftercare are you giving them next? And is all of the behavior that you see next because they are flooded or they just want to go home and have a chocolate bar? right. When you ask someone to remember a shitty moment in their life, the chance that they're going to be in a bad mood increases. And when people are in bad moods, they tend to not be very nice people to be around. They tend to be grumpy. They tend to be more likely to not be very compassionate. They tend to be less likely to want to help other people because they're in a bad mood. The idea that victimhood culture results in the downfall of our society because people complaining about microaggressions is making everyone into a complaining, selfish asshole is the voice of the idiot conservatives. The fact that an idiot conservative can say to someone else, oh, you're only doing, you're only talking about microaggressions because you're a selfish victim culture individual. You just need to shut up. That's what the whole message around both of these articles, not only the sociologist, but also this article written by this, by this journalist in the New York Times, by the way. Yeah. They're basically telling us to shut up. Mm-hmm. That's their message. You are acting like the victim. You're acting like you're needy. You are a sad person. You're indoctrinated into this young, selfish culture. You are overly entitled, and it's bullshit, and you need to shut up. That's what they're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's hard to imagine that it's okay to say th- things didn't go my way. In fact, they really didn't go my way. I would say that my impression is that in the conservative movement, which is funny because they see themselves as victims too. Right. You know, but they're, you're allowed to complain about taxes and paying for social services. You know, somehow they get to define the entire platform of what is acceptable to discuss and what is unacceptable. And right. for people to talk about microaggressions, it must be so terrifying because the content is so personal right. and so much is exposed. Which I have compassion for. It, I have compassion that is terrifying to them. And for some conservatives, they probably come around. For many, they don't. I understand that it's scary. And there's lots of ways of dealing with your, with your fear, Mr. Conservative. I, I understand that you're a, a fearful, uh, scared little person. And there's lots of ways of dealing with that fear. You can, can dig your heels in and act like a four-year-old spoiled uh, entitled brat, or you can be an adult and start listening to other people. How about that? Can you tell I'm angry, Rebecca? I, I, I wonder what it would be like for them to listen. I mean, it's, I personally cannot watch the, uh, Republican debates that are happening. Um, but I can watch the clips afterwards and there is so much accusing and aggressiveness uh, that to live in that state all the time, I just think it must be exhausting. Yeah, well, it. I know people like this, and they don't seem exhausted. Mm. They seem they seem quite relaxed in mm-hmm. their 
in their situation. The only thing I can think of as you have hope for the future is not only will our society change, but people like me and people like yourself will only gain more power in our <laughs> as as we gain more numbers you know the the amount of uh white heterosexual it's on the decline men who are protestant and middle class in a hundred years will they'll be like five percent of this country and so either they will have to come around mm-hmm. or they'll be displaced <laughs> or they'll become such a small part of our society that we'll, we'll just no longer care what they have to say. Right. And so it's just a matter of time, whiteies. No <laughs> offense, Rebecca. It's just a matter of time. The brown people are taking over. I'm, I, it's already happened. I mean, in the neighborhood I've lived in. Well, you're Jewish, so, yeah. so that's part of it, right? It's already happened. Yeah. Well, you live in a diverse, very Yeah, I mean, family. I have to say what's so funny is that the thing that they fear the most is actually so beautiful when you're sitting in the middle of it. <laughs> it's yeah. like, I just want to say, like, it's really not that bad. Like, come on over. Right. And, you know, yeah. go down to the Columbia City Farmer's Market and yeah. you'll see it's actually quite lovely, this thing that you're so terrified of. One day, 50 years from now, we'll, we'll find a, a white, older male Protestant guy and he'll be hanging out at a party with all us brown people and, you know, non-mainstream traditional roles. And we'll say, oh, you're so accepting for a white person. <laughs> and then he'll say, oh, I'm sorry, that's a microaggression. <laughs> and, and then the world will be right. Right. And then we'll have come full circle. Well, that does it for another episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me, Rebecca. It's always a pleasure to be here. I had a feeling you would be an excellent person to talk about this. I'm so excited to get a chance to talk about it. Please take care of yourself out there. Fight back against the microaggressions. Be assertive while being compassionate for the other person. Be cool about it, but assert your position. Change society. Make the world a fairer place for yourself and for all of us. And if you are a perpetrator of a microaggression that's unintentional, Take it easy on yourself. I one time, I had no idea the word midget was a bad word. Mm. And I was online 10 years ago, 15 years ago, and I said the word midget and someone slammed me as if I had said the N-word or something. And I, and I was like, oh my God, I had no idea. And that was traumatic for me. I felt, I felt like I was, I, I was like Donald, being accused of being Donald Trump all of a sudden. And it wasn't because I meant it. I, I just had no idea. I was completely ignorant of that. And I wish the person would have just been a little cooler. So let's, let's, try to be, let's try to be cool about stuff. And take care of yourself because you deserve it. 